Hello and welcome to Data Today, brought to you by Zulka. I'm your host, Dan Klein, and I look after everything data and AI at Zulka. We're living in a world of opportunities, but to fully realize them, we have to reshape the way we innovate. We need to stop siloing data, ring-fencing knowledge, and looking at traditional value chains. And that's what this podcast is about. We're taking a look at data outside the box to see how amazing individuals from disparate fields and industries are transforming the way they work with data, the challenges they're overcoming, and what we can all learn from them. In season two, we're exploring how we can use data to save the world, from helping people discover their history to combating fake news. We're going to be covering a lot of ground. At the time of recording in early 2024, we are mere days away from the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The people on the ground have not only had to endure the physical effects of war, but have also had to pick their way through the waves of pervasive disinformation. Misdirecting the population is always something that's happened in wartime. However, increased technological access has added a new dimension of complexity into the mix. My guest today is Olga Tukaric. She's a journalist and Chatham House fellow who specializes in research around disinformation. She has spoken widely about Russia's use of disinformation in the war and what can be done to fight back against it. To start us off, I asked Olga to break down the main ways that technology and AI are being used in the war by Ukraine. The first area is the battlefield, and obviously everyone have heard of the use of drones by both sides, but it's not just drones. So drones very often are AI-powered, but there are also other systems, such as uh, systems of inc- information gathering, information processing systems. Satellites, obviously, are playing an enormous role in decision-making. Then uh, this large AI-powered systems that help inform uh, decision-making on behalf of the Ukrainian military. It's just impossible for humans to process that huge amount of data that is coming from different sources, satellites, video, footage, images from the battlefields taken by both military and civilians, and then also the all the intelligence information that is coming. So AI and technology are helping to process and make sense of all that huge amount of information and then inform the decision-making by the Ukrainian military. So it's battlefield use. Very good. And the, the other three areas? Then there is the second one, which is the use of AI and technology in documenting what is happening. So the technology helps to gather and process all the information related to what Russian military has been doing on the territory of Ukraine, which includes countless crimes against the civilian population. So just registering those, collecting all the information related not only to the victims and survivors of these crimes, but also to potential perpetrators. For example, face recognition technology helps to identify and put a name to a face of potential Russian war criminals that have been captured on CCTV cameras in Ukraine. 
especially this is relevant to, you know, those more urban areas of Ukraine that have been initially occupied by Russians in the early stage of the invasion. I'm speaking here about Kyiv, the capital and the Kyiv region, Bucha, everyone heard about Bucha and the crimes Russians committed there. So, you know, these areas are very well digitalized. So there are a lot of CCTV cameras everywhere there. So a lot of Russian soldiers were captured there on these cameras. And then the law enforcement agencies used facial recognition technology to identify those people to put a name to a face. Not just law enforcement, actually investigative journalists. They do use this technology as well. And interestingly enough, when I spoke with some Ukrainian investigative journalists about that, they told me that they are not only relying on Western technology, which you would think Ukrainians would, but they are even relying on some like Russian software because they said what Russian software does and what Western software doesn't, it searches also on Russian social media. It has access to Russian websites, which the Western software does not have access to because Russia blocks the access to these outside software systems. Then the third area is uh, communication. And here, I mean, not just on behalf of the government, although that is a big part, but also so again, the communication by journalists, by civilians. And here, interestingly, how civilians are using uh, new technology. So Ukrainian government developed several tools for civilians, for example, to communicate and document the movement of Russian forces. So there is an app that civilians can use in which they just upload their geolocation, for example, and a photo and a video they made of Russian tanks or Russian soldiers moving. And in this way, like this data is immediately transferred to the government, to the officials who are making the decisions. And then while the digital tools are also used to signal the damage that has been done to buildings so people can report, uh, can claim some funds for reconstruction of their damaged property as a result of military action. So different ways of, well, this kind of borders on documentation as well, but it is also about like communication. And just speaking strictly about communication, so there are examples how and some of these examples are quite controversial, how the Ukrainian government and, and some actors that are non-governmental, how they use, for example, AI-generated imagery to talk about war, to raise awareness about war. And in some instances, actually, that was not very successful, that backfired, because in on some occasions, then users questioned the credibility of this information because they said, well, you used an AI-generated photo to illustrate a Russian missile attack. Why did you do that? Didn't you have real image uh, from the scene? Also, in a way, of course, Technology is helping in all these various areas, but sometimes people are just too eager to jump on the bandwagon of technology and AI and like use it without thinking about the consequences. The generative AI space is moving at lightning speed, so you can understand why some might misunderstand the consequences of its use. In January 2023, the Ukrainian government's official X, formerly known as Twitter, published a picture of a child surrounded by rubble of a residential block that had been destroyed. It came to light that the attack was real, but the child was AI-generated, and that Ukraine hadn't included a disclaimer of any kind. This garnered international criticism, and eventually they took the picture down. Hopefully, 
Lessons have been learned from this misstep, but you can see how easy it is to put AI-aided misinformation out there and how it has the potential to reduce the credibility of data sources in the future. I'd like to quickly recap what Olga has said so far before we move on. She's mentioned three key areas where technology and AI have been used in the war by Ukraine. On the battlefield, in evidence gathering, when engaging with its citizens. So what's the fourth area? The fourth space is disinformation and all the activities in the information field, but also in the cyberspace, because it's another side of the same coin, I would say. And interestingly, uh, how technology is being used versus disinformation or to facilitate disinformation, that, that's actually the thing. That it can be used both ways. It's a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, malign actors, authoritarian states, such as Russia in our case particularly, is using technology to automate and also give greater personalization to disinformation that it is spreading among its own population, among Ukrainian population, but also among the population of other countries, which tries to influence like their position, not just on its war in Ukraine, but also on, on a range of other issues, sometimes on domestic policies. So based on the profile of a user, the user can be fed that particular type of disinformation that would resonate with them and push them towards the actions that these malign actors want these users to undertake. But on the other hand, also countries, in our case as Ukraine, that are targets of disinformation, systemic disinformation, which has been going on for years, which is being used really as an instrument of war. So this is not just something that doesn't have any resonance with real life or might have some limited impact on the real life. In the case of Russia's warfare against Ukraine, information warfare had and still continues to have real life consequences. So because people believe in propaganda and disinformation that there are Nazis in Ukraine, that, you know, they have to be exterminated, uh, re-educated forcibly, uh, their children have to be deported and so on. It all has real-life consequences in terms of uh, Russian citizens coming and committing this, what some people call acts of genocide. And definitely Ukraine has been a target of this attack since at least 2014 and had, it had developed its own set of tools to counter these attacks. And in this, also the use of technology and AI is really helpful because Ukraine is using the possibilities that technology has to not just track the narratives that Russians are spreading and somehow to be able then to act preemptively and to warn its own population to say, look, there is this campaign underway that Russia is launching and we gathered this evidence thanks to digital tools. We analyzed a huge amount of data from social media, for example, and we are able to identify key messages, key narratives, and also key actors. We also tracked, thanks to these tools, the links between these uh, actors and the links to the Kremlin sometimes. Sometimes there is no uh, direct link to the Kremlin, but there might be links to Russian state-funded media, which basically is a link to the Kremlin because they are completely controlled and funded by the state. How do you respond to that disinformation? Well, definitely, first thing is to raise awareness and hear like all the debunking efforts that have been going on, like Ukrainian initiatives such as Stop Fake, where one of the first ones in the world, like these fact-checking organizations, to do this all this work and countering and exposing Russian disinformation, just raising awareness and showing, look, they are doing this and that, be aware. 
this is important to raise awareness, to debunk, but it's not enough, obviously. There are a lot of other things and other techniques have to be employed. And one of, of them is pre-bunking. So pre-bunking basically is trying to anticipate something by saying, look, they are preparing this and this, not after it already happened, but before it actually happened, by monitoring the information space, by gathering data, and then by analyzing data with the use of AI, but also with the brains of humans, making sense of it, and then saying, look, they are probably preparing this and that based on the information we gathered and based on the analysis that technology helped us with. So pre-bunking is something really efficient, and there have been examples of when Russians had to postpone some of their operations or actually cancel some of their activities that were planned because of this pre-bunking that has been made and the uh, warnings that have been issued beforehand. How do you make that available to people in Ukraine? The, the average members of the public in Ukraine, just give them the tools themselves. Since, you know, th this war has not been going on just for two years, not just uh, since 2022, it's been going on since 2014. I think the majority of Ukrainians and the, there are surveys that confirm that they really developed a really high level of resistance towards disinformation and also their media literacy levels are now quite high because they have been exposed to all this Russian propaganda and disinformation about Ukraine for so many years and they couldn't find evidence of it in real life. Well, you don't. So you don't see like Nazis roaming the streets of Kyiv or you don't see American biolabs being set up in the building next door. These are all things that Russians claim on their media constantly. So first, like people just don't see the confirmation of what they hear in their real life. And that's kind of the first antidote that makes them not vulnerable. And then just being aware, because both the government, but also a lot of civil society organizations and journalists, they have been talking about this impact of disinformation. And also because in 2014, I think people saw how some people were fooled by Russian propaganda and disinformation and that pushed them towards taking up arms, for example, against the Ukrainian government in Donetsk and Luhansk regions. And then a lot of people actually disillusioned. They realized that they have been lied to by the Russian media, by Russian officials. So having this experience, I think, is what like made Ukrainians resilient, that people do not take any information at face value. It actually sometimes backfires to the Ukrainian government because they, what they are putting in the information space will not be taken at face value either. But I think that's what's normal in a democracy. I'm interested now, so we talked earlier about the journalists within Ukraine being very decentralized, how do we ensure that the journalists themselves within Ukraine are not being manipulated by the Russian state? Well, again, I think this is something related to my previous answer that when people are on the ground and they have been there for years, they know how the situation is developing. You cannot easily fool them because they are there. They are seeing what's happening with their own eyes. So it's not easy to then manipulate and fool them. I think this is more actually relevant to foreign journalists. Uh, not all of them are there. Not all of them are on the ground. Some of those who are on the ground, they are doing just parachuting journalism. They are only there for a few days, maximum maybe two weeks, and then they come there without maybe knowing the local context and then they return to their home countries without being able to understand maybe much in these two weeks. Then, of course, it's like up 
it depends on on every journalist and well most western american or uk teams they work with locals so they would work with local fixers with local translators who would like do a lot of work in terms of the logistics translation organizing interviews but also explaining the local context explaining history explaining all the cultural aspects that are relevant We're living through a period where fewer people trust journalists and media outlets. The 2024 Elderman Trust Barometer found that only 31% of the survey respondents from the UK trusted the media. This was down 6% on the previous year. For Germany, it was 46% and 40% for the French. With a sample size of over 32,000, I think that this data paints a picture of just how much things have changed even from just a few years ago. There is other research out there, all pointing towards the same thing, a general decline in media trust. It all begs the question, what can be done to repair the public's relationship with media outlets? I think there are different approaches. And obviously in Ukraine, media are facing also other challenges. So it's not the only challenge. Now the huge challenge is obviously funding because of the big drop in the advertising revenues because of of the war. So a lot of media are actually struggling to make the ends meet. And a lot of local media have been forced to shut down last year because of Russia's full-scale invasion. But I think what is happening also during wartime is that Obviously, there is like the perception of threat. It's so much more acute than in the normal times in the peacetime. And the perception of threat, not just the physical threat, but also perception of threat in the information space. So I think people become more conscious of what they consume and the sources that they choose to trust. And potentially that could actually benefit the media if the media are able to show that they are providing the information which represents the objective picture of what is actually happening if they are not just repeating, towing the government line or maybe on the contrary, trying to be very like edgy and just like contradict everything that the government says. You know, the fact that journalists are still able to do their job, report from dangerous places, ask critical questions and expose issues, really sensitive issues such as corruption, I think is already remarkable. And that works towards increasing trust from the society. At least that's what I want to hope for, that the public will be more eager to trust the media who are doing all this job even in wartime. There is a source of information I do find very interesting in this context, which is what we can see from space. And there is an assumption that what we get from the satellites in terms of images and LIDAR and heat signature and all that sort of stuff, is somehow incontrovertible. I.e. it is the ground truth of what is happening on the war. Interested in your thoughts as you have frontline journalists who are able to report from the front line with photographic evidence, GPS located, time stamped. And then we have the equivalent data sets coming in from whether it's the satellite imagery, the LIDAR imagery, we also potentially have the mobile data that tells us were there actually a bunch of people there at the time we thought there were. Do you feel there's data sets and there's information that is kind of, let's call it ground truth? And then there's other information which is close to ground truth, but it's a reinforcement of ground truth. How would you separate that as a journalist? Definitely now journalists have at their disposal 
many more tools than they used to have before, right? Now you can add satellite imagery, you can add open source uh, data, you can add mobile data and so on. And I think there is a lot of potential in, in combining all these tools to make some really great examples of journalism. So we've seen, for example, some investigations of Russian massacre of civilians in Bucha or in Mariupol, where satellite images were really instrumental into establishing what was really happening. Well, especially if we're talking about Mariupol, when where there were no journalists on the ground after the Associated Press crew that worked there for the first 20 days of Russian full-scale invasion, they were forced to leave and there were no journalists left. So there was no one to report on the continuing assault and siege of Mariupol that went on for weeks afterwards. Having satellite images of destroyed drama theater, for example, in Mariupol, was really important in confirming, you know, the extent of damage and also the extent of war crimes that Russians have been committing there. And the war in Ukraine it particularly highlights the potential that technology has to complement the work of journalists. But also, of course, it should be used smartly. There shouldn't be an over-reliance on ultimately objective <laughs> sources of information. When it comes to having an accurate picture of something, more data is better. In a way, the data flywheel effect applies here too. The more journalistic sources the public has access to, the more awareness can be built around what is actually going on. Between 2014 and 2022, Ukraine experienced rapid technological transformation. In this period, the government introduced DIA, an app that allowed citizens to access and renew official documents. Originally, this piece of tech was designed to help combat corruption. After all, you can't really bribe an app. Later down the line, DIA was repurposed during the COVID-19 pandemic to house vaccination certificates. When Russia undertook the full-scale invasion in 2022, the app was then further expanded to include more features to enable the citizens to engage in the war effort. People were given the possibility to report the movement of Russian soldiers. They were given the possibility to report if they saw like Russian missiles flying. So they could give direct like information to Ukrainian air defense that they would be able to intercept these Russian missiles or drones. So it is still possible like to do now. And then, yes, of course, people were able to then make claims about their like damaged properties, the losses for compensations, then internally displaced people, millions of them, as a result of Russian full-scale invasion. They were also, thanks to this app, able to claim certain social benefits if they had to relocate to other parts of Ukraine and they needed support with anything or just like registering in another region, they were able to do that. Of course, there is like also a lot of talk about the potential misuse and, you know, the abuse of an app like that, that the government has access to so many personal data. How well is this data protected? Are we sure that Russian hackers, Russian government will not be able to just like hack the system and steal all this data? So there has been, of course, like a lot of talk about and debate about that, how safe it is. Well, there were like attempts by Russians to breach the safety and to get access to this data. They were not particularly successful. Now there is also a debate in Ukraine and then a new narrative of Russia 
Russian disinformation that Ukrainian men will start receiving their like drafting orders to the army in this app. So they've been like pushing this thing that the, the government will like use and abuse this app in order to like mobilize men uh, so that they will not have to, you know, go to military offices or will not be presented with a notice in person, but they would just like receive this notification via this app. And that's actually the purpose of this app, why they created it in the first place. So yeah, it's not without controversy. We'll see how it will develop in the future, but a lot of people find it helpful. Let's segue back a little bit, if it's okay with you. And please, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. I would really like to understand Olga. How did Olga get here? What's your trajectory here? Where did you start? And how did you land up, A, becoming a journalist, then getting into this, but then also your own personal story about arriving in the UK? So I decided to become a journalist probably for two reasons. First, my father was a journalist in a local newspaper in one of the Western regions of Ukraine. I liked what he was doing and was inspired by his work. And then secondly, because I had this curiosity about the world from a very young age, I liked to read various adventurous stories. I like to read about explorers, uh, exploring different continents. And I was always very curious growing up in a small town in the west of Ukraine. My first trip abroad was when I was 17. Like I was curious about the world, but I didn't have much like exposure to it actually. So my only kind of ways to connect with something like wider and bigger were languages. So I learned English and Italian when I was a teenager, and then that helped me greatly in my career as a journalist and in my life. Then since 2014, I've been also working with uh, foreign media as a freelancer, contributing, reporting from Ukraine as a correspondent in Kyiv. And that continued up until the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. I ended up for the second time finding myself abroad for an extended period of time, which I didn't plan and I didn't, you know, want, is here in the UK, where after Russia invaded Ukraine on a full-scale basis in February 2022, I was still in Ukraine for seven months. I had to relocate with my family from the capital, Kyiv, towards my hometown of Chernivtsi in the west of Ukraine, where most of my family lives. And I stayed there for seven months reporting for various international media, like giving comments and tweeting and accepting every media request that I had and every request to speak at any international event and panel to raise awareness about what has been happening in Ukraine. And then actually, even before the full-scale invasion started, I applied for a fellowship at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford. So I didn't know at that time, whether there will be an invasion and what scale it would be. So there were already reports and I had that in mind when I applied. I thought, okay, maybe as a plan B to take my daughter into safety, not just that much about myself or my career, but because I wasn't sure what was going to happen, I found out that I was accepted. It was a great opportunity uh, that I really appreciated. I just wished it happened in different circumstances because I think I wasn't able to fully enjoy the opportunities that it gave because I was so focused on the horrors that, you know, my loved ones were going through in Ukraine and that I wasn't completely able to detach myself from what has been happening there. So my physical body was here in the UK, but with my thoughts, I was in Ukraine. So now it's my second year actually in the UK 
I'm still here with my daughter. The rest of my family is back in Ukraine, which is really difficult. Like we try to go back and forth every several months to, you know, see the rest of my family. But we also find it, let's say now it is easier than it was a year ago because we found our network here consisting of both locals, but also Ukrainians in the UK really appreciate all the support that the UK has offered to Ukrainians. My daughter settled very well in the school. She learned English. She's now able to crack jokes in English, <laughs> which I think is a very good indicator of uh, her progress. <laughs> Hopefully one day we'll be able to return to peaceful and free Ukraine. For the final takeaway, if people listening to this will be data science enthusiasts or potentially just enthusiastic people who are interested in data, what would your one takeaway be for people who want to engage with data and information in an area that is as complex as an ongoing war? What would your takeaway be? Data is never only about like numbers. It's always about people and in war, you can use data to actually, for the benefit of people, to make their lives easier, to, you know, draw attention to the injustices that are being committed, to call for justice, to call for peace. I think what Ukraine is doing is really showing how data can be used for good. And there are a lot of lessons to learn from that. But yeah, like just putting a person, humans, at the center of attention when using data, I think... That's, that's important. That would be just my one kind of advice and lesson. Olga's story is incredible. And I'm very grateful that she shared it with us today. We need people like her on the ground and abroad to turn data into stories that can educate and galvanize the public's awareness of disinformation. The stakes for believing falsehoods are high on the battlefield, but they also have consequences in peacetime. In 2024, over 4 billion people will be heading to the polls to vote in elections around the world. You have to wonder about how disinformation could affect those democratic outcomes. However, as technological literacy improves the world over, there is hope that a new kind of critical thinking will prevail. Business ecosystems are not new. What is new is that they are becoming increasingly data empowered. To realize complex opportunities, we need innovation beyond boundaries, democratized information and close collaboration between diverse players. Collaborative, data empowered, borderless innovation is how we embrace a world of exponential change. Thanks for listening to Data Today, brought to you by Zulka. I've been your host, Dan Klein. For more information on Zulka's work, please visit our website.